Good morning, everyone. Hey, guys. Good morning. There we go. Much, much better. Thank you. Awesome. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Pleasure to sing to our God together. My pleasure to open His Word with you. We are back in the book of Philippians after a couple weeks off. And uh, for those of you who maybe have not been with us since the beginning, let me just get you up to speed as where we are in the book. The Apostle Paul is in prison due to his missionary work, and the church in Philippi, a church that he helped start some 10 years previously, raised support for him, and they sent a man named Epaphroditus to take him a gift and minister to him in prison. Now Paul's written this letter back to the Philippian church, and that is what we have in our Bibles as the book of Philippians. And he starts this letter off with thanksgiving and prayer for the Philippians, and then he gives them an update on how he is doing in prison. And very strikingly throughout this book, we notice that Paul is full of joy despite his imprisonment. And he's full of joy because of the ways the gospel is moving forward. And as he looks to the future even, to the possibility of being out of prison, the advance of the gospel is still first and foremost on his mind and heart. He tells the Philippians that his one desire through life or death is that Christ should be honored in his body. He describes his outlook on life as to live is Christ, which he explains as taking opportunities wherever he can to tell others about Jesus and minister to them. And he says to die is gain. And why is death gain? Because it means being with Jesus, which Paul says is better by far. If he could choose... His future outcome tells the Philippians he would choose to remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he's in prison, doesn't know what the future holds, but if he could choose the outcome... He would choose to see them again and to spend time teaching them and encouraging them in their walk with Christ and their mission to advance the gospel. That brings us to the section of the book we are in today. So if you're not there already, Philippians 1 verse 27. Philippians 1 verse 27 and we'll be looking all the way through to chapter 2 verse 4. Let me read from verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul tells the Philippians here, yes, he said he would like to come and see them and spend more time teaching and encouraging them in their Christian walk, but he doesn't know that 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 will happen. And he summarizes his desire for these believers in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you, whether I don't get to, I want your manner of life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, live lives worthy of the gospel. This phrase or something close to it is used several times in Scripture. And there's undoubtedly more to this idea than Paul explores here in Philippians. But here in Philippians, Paul highlights two things in particular that he sees as being under the umbrella of a life that is worthy of the gospel. The first of those is the courage and intentionality to advance the gospel together. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? We must have courage and intentionality to advance the gospel together. Firstly, what this means is that we need to be unashamed to be exclusive. We have one God and one gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not the attitude of mainstream culture today. Mainstream culture today is very definitely, very definitely has an attitude of all perspectives being valid. Atheistic views, African traditional religion, Hinduism, Muslim, uh, Islam, Buddhism, Catholicism, different stripes of Christianity, all should be treated as fine. Even if some will go so far as saying that, that to be religious is better than to, to not be religious, there's still a mindset of all ways that ultimately lead to God. Exclusivity is not tolerated. What really matters is just spirituality, morality, being a good person. But this, brothers and sisters, is not a biblical position at all. What we must be most passionate about is not a certain morality, but our God Himself. There is only one Creator. There is only one giver of every good gift that we enjoy in this universe. 
There is one God who is perfectly holy and worthy of worship. And though he is the God we have rejected and rebelled against, he is also the God who has kindly, graciously made a way for us to be reconciled to him and to enjoy close relationship with him forever and ever. We declare a holy God who is worthy of worship, indeed a God who is jealous for our worship, and a God who has provided the only way for our sin against Him to be covered. We need to remember that historically, Christians have been thrown in prison, Paul himself being an example. Christians have been thrown to the lions or burned at the stake if they don't renounce these beliefs. In some parts of the world, brothers and sisters, this sort of thing is still happening. What about us? We may face much less violent consequences. Oops. Sorry about that. If we don't deny Jesus. But it is no less important that we stand and stand boldly for him and his gospel. Seemingly good and moral and religious people need to know that their good deeds will not save them. Their religiosity will not save them. Their church attendance will not save them. We need to be bold and tell them, of Jesus and the cross. We don't need to be prideful and unnecessarily harsh in how we make that known. If we know the gospel, we remember that it is not our own good deeds, right? We have nothing to boast about, as Ephesians 2 tells us. But we do have a truth that is true and is exclusively true. And must be made known. This is both about love for Jesus Christ and about love for the lost. The lost will never be saved if they do not know they are lost. They will not run to Jesus if they don't know their need for a Savior. There is a God we are all accountable to, and there is only one Savior. Cleaning our lives up won't do it, no matter how hard we try. Jesus is the only one who has met God's perfect standard. He's the only one who can pay the penalty our sins deserve. And we need to tell others about that. We need to follow Jesus as Lord, despite opposition. We need to follow Jesus as Lord, Despite opposition. Part, certainly a big part of how we stand for Jesus is in our day-to-day -day actions. It's in the choices we make. Honesty and integrity in the workplace is going to impress some of our co-workers, but it's going to anger and irritate others who would prefer us to cut corners with them. Purity and sobriety in your social interactions is often going to leave you as the odd one out. You might be the, one, the only one who's not laughing at the dirty jokes. 
You might be the only one who wants to change the topic when the conversation goes off color, or the, one who, the only one who doesn't want to participate in gossip and belittling others. And so you'll be seen as the boring one, as the killjoy who ruins the party. Brothers and sisters, our day-to-day decisions, decisions to give in to the pressures around us, to fit in, to be liked, or to honor Christ, to obey what He calls us to, these decisions are hugely important. We need to evaluate our lives and consider whether we are living lives that are worthy of the gospel. Are we honoring Christ in these little decisions day to day? Or are we making compromises? And of course, we also need to intentionally spread the gospel. Some of you may have heard a popular saying that says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. There's certainly some truth in this saying. We've just been talking about the fact that our way of life needs to match up with the Lordship of Christ, that we truly do follow Christ, and we're not just Christians in name. Our way of life needs to show forth the transforming power of the gospel. We should not be people who are just talk. But it is misleading to think that we can preach the gospel without words because the gospel is a message. We can stand out as different. We can live in a way that generates questions, that makes people wonder about what we believe and what we live for. And that's all good. But it is truths that save. And people need to hear those truths in order to embrace them and to put their faith in them. We need to tell people of their sin. We need to tell people of the holiness of God. We need to tell people that Jesus is the Savior who came into the world to save sinners. This is the great commission God has given us. He's made us ambassadors of Him, ministers of reconciliation. We have the most precious message in the universe, and we need to deliver it to others. We need to invite people to church. We need to take opportunities to hand out flyers and tracts. We need to talk to people about Jesus. And I realize that that is much more challenging for some of us than it is for others. Some of us who might be a little bit more quiet and reserved personality-wise. But we need to link arms with one another. We need to stand for the gospel together. We need to be creative. We need to, at the very least, as this opportunity coming up this Saturday, at the very least, you can put flyers in somebody's mailbox to make sure that they know that the church exists. We can all, and we must all, be diligent to spread the gospel. Now I said that what Paul's calling us here to is living a life worthy of the gospel together. And that specifically, we're looking to stand and promote 
Stand, stand for the gospel and promote the gospel together. Now, why is this togetherness so important? It's definitely clearly emphasized in this passage. Well, first of all, it's because we need to realize that we are all called to this. We are all called to this. This isn't just something that some Christians uh, are called to while others uh, can sit on the sidelines and just watch. The specific opportunities we have will vary, but we are all called to intentionally and boldly seek to advance the gospel. And of course, at the end of the day, more can be done together. What does Jesus tell us? He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We need every laborer engaged in this mission. In this mission. Why together? Because we need encouragement and prayer. Standing for Jesus is very often hard. Let's be honest. Even though we're not in, a circum- in circumstances where uh, the, we, we might have uh, policemen coming in the back of this church uh, at any second and, and, and arresting us all. We're not in those circumstances, but we face we face difficulties in standing for Christ nonetheless. When you try your best to be respectful, but your father still gets deeply offended with you because you've told him he's a sinner who needs a Savior. That's hard. When your co-worker ridicules you every week, for not being willing to join the group of friends from work for various activities. That pressure builds and builds. You can feel very isolated, very alone. When your family expects everybody to go together to see us on Goma to resolve certain family issues, and you are the only one unwilling to go, that's hard. When your long-term friend decides they aren't interested in a friendship with you anymore because of how you keep trying to tell them about Jesus, that's hard. Even for some of us who tend to be bolder people with thicker skin, standing for Christ is oftentimes hard. We need each other. We need encouragement from one another. We need to spur one another on. We need to be praying for each other. God does not intend us to be in this alone. And we are one body with different gifts, right? Let's remember how, how, how many times, how clearly the New Testament describes the church as a body with different members gifted in different ways. And those gifts, of course, are, are supposed to work together to help this body do what it needs to do and do it well. You might be an amazing eye in that body. But if you want to get from point A to point B, you need legs to move you there. And this is by design. This is the way God has made the church. 
This is the way God has gifted us each individually. And He calls us to come together and to work together to accomplish the great commission He's given us. In this section here in Philippians 1, there's a few sub-points to draw your attention to, right? As we suffer together, as we make sacrifices and and seek to be bold and courageous in standing for the gospel, Paul points out the sign of suffering without fear. Okay? That's in verse 28. Well, here's what we're talking about. Paul says that our willingness to stand together, to courageously seek to advance the gospel, despite opposition, our willingness to do this even when it brings suffering, it's a sign. It's like a double-sided coin. The one side of the coin is the sign to us of our salvation, of our true genuine faith, because it shows God's grace in our lives to help us believe the gospel deeply enough to believe it's true and to believe it's infinitely precious and worth suffering for. There's no doubt that we believe it. The more and more we are willing to suffer for it. And then the other side of the coin, for those who oppose us, that they have to notice is that they have no such confidence in their own eternity. They see our willingness to suffer. They see our willingness. They see how precious the gospel is to us. And they realize they do not have that same confidence. They do not have that same joy. And at least in some cases, this can be the very thing that causes them then to question their opposition to the gospel and to wonder at the faith that Christians have. It is a clear sign to them of their destruction, of their hopeless situation, but of our salvation from God. The other thing Paul points us to here is the gift of suffering for Christ. Now that might sound a bit strange. The gift of suffering. Paul tells us in verse 29 that our faith is a gift from God. And indeed we were just talking about that with our memory verse earlier with, from Ephesians 2. But faith is something we can more easily understand as a gift. We're dead in our trespasses. We're blind to our spiritual condition. And then by God's amazing grace, He comes and He opens our blind eyes to see so that we embrace Jesus in faith. But suffering? How's that a gift? It's a little harder to see, isn't it? Well, here's a few reasons why it's a gift. First of all, because of the assurance of salvation that it brings. Just as we've been talking about. The more and more you are willing to suffer for Christ, the longer you are willing to endure suffering for Christ. The more you are able to evaluate your own faith and to realize I really do believe this. I really am willing to suffer for this. I really do have an amazing, unshakable hope. It's a privilege. Ultimately, 
when we suffer for the gospel, we're suffering in the place of Jesus. Hatred and opposition against him ends up being directed at us. He's not present. We are. So we receive the, the opposition aimed at him. And for those who love Jesus, to realize that their shouldering abuse aimed at their Savior is a great privilege. And God uses suffering for our good. The Bible tells us in several places that we can be joyful in the midst of trials because God is using the difficulties we face to grow us in our relationship with Him and to grow us in Christ-likeness. So suffering in these ways is a gift, a genuine good. Paul calls the Philippians to live lives worthy of the gospel together. First of all, that includes courage and intentionality to advance the gospel together. And secondly, it includes humble, considerate, servant-hearted unity. Humble, considerate, servant-hearted unity. To, to live this way, to have this perspective, we need to remember the grace that we have been shown. We need to remember our own salvation, our own inclusion into the body of Christ. Remember, we have been welcomed into the body of Christ, into the family of God, not because we've merited it at all, but by grace. When Paul says here in chapter 2, verse 1, if there is, if there is, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a rhetorical device, and what it is understood to mean would be more along the lines of since there is, okay? It's not so much a question, it's a statement, okay? So, since there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, you, you have these things. As a Christian, you have these things. You have an encouragement that, that you, you have all the encouragement that has come to you from knowing Christ and walking with Him. There's the love and the deep partnership that you've experienced with other Christians as you seek to live for Christ together. Since you have those things, since those things are true, since those things are your experience, since you did nothing to deserve those things, you should freely share with other Christians these blessings that you've received yourself. The gospel is bigger than you. You need to help the church fulfill its mission. Okay? Humble, considerate, servant-hearted unity is how we live when we realize that the gospel is bigger than us and we need to be about the business of helping the church fulfill its mission. Verse 3 tells us, Do nothing, nothing, out of selfish ambition or conceit. It's not about you. It's so much bigger than you. 
But our inclination as human beings is to make everything about promoting ourselves. Remember we saw just a few weeks back that Paul has even experienced this from others while he's been in prison. There's other Christians who've, who've jumped at an opportunity to climb the ladder of, of, um, uh, of, of being well-known and respected in the Christian world to try and put themselves in a position of, of, of prominence over Paul. And Paul, as he sat in prison, is, is, has seen their selfish ambition, has realized that a lot of what's motivating them is not pure. It's conceit, it's rivalry, it's pride. And now he urges the Philippians not to be that way themselves. He urges us not to be that way ourselves. He urges us to take ourselves out of the picture completely. Need to keep a proper perspective and remember how much bigger the gospel is than us. And what does that actually then look like? It looks like dying to self and eagerly considering, serving, and honoring others. Dying to self and eagerly considering, serving, and honoring others. Think about these verses. Look at the second half of verse 3. Count others as more significant than yourselves. More significant than yourselves. These verses, if we really seek to apply them, hit hard. Verse 4, don't just look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life, living a life that is worthy of the gospel, is living a life where day by day you are dying to self and looking to serve and honor others. When we live like this, we promote unity. We make it possible for us to stand together as Paul has been calling us to here and to strive to fulfill our mission together. There's no infighting tearing us apart and distracting us because we're too busy showing preference and kindness and service and honor to each other. And we keep and it enables us to keep our focus where it needs to be on the mission God has called us to. Some of you uh, might have watched, I'm sure many of you, have watched the, the Marvel movies. And uh, one of the things that struck me as I was in this passage this week was just in, in at least a couple of the Avengers movies, you've got the, the, the enemies basically recognizing that the Avengers, when they are functioning together, right? When they are working together as a team are pretty much unstoppable. So you see in the first Avengers movie and you see in the Civil War movie, I guess that's a Captain America movie, but, but the, there's this mindset of the only way we're going to beat them is if we can get them to fight amongst themselves. If we can tear them apart from the inside. And brothers and sisters, the same is true with the church in many ways. Right? God has given us all the gifts that we need when we are functioning together as one unit, as one body, united and focused on the mission He's given us. 
God has given us everything we need to accomplish our mission. But we will fail to accomplish our mission if we start tearing each other apart from within. If we make things about us instead of about the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel and His glory. God has given us everything we need if we remain united and unified, work, strive, stand for advancing the gospel together. How do we live lives worthy of the gospel? Together, through courage and intentionality to advance the gospel and through humble, considerate, servant-hearted unity. May God help us to live this way. Amen. Okay. Thank you.